Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, entrepreneur, jazz and blues artist, public speaker, founder and CEO of M. HW Live Music and the Wiggler Group, Matt Wiggler. Hey, what you drink? You know, I, I would even go as far as to say if you spend 10 years doing something day after day that you don't enjoy, that could be a definition of hell. I mean, it very well could. And then, you know, another thing you brought up was this idea of practice. And I just, uh, one of my new, my new mentors turned me onto this book. It's not a new book, but it was new to me. It's called Talent is Overrated by Jeff Culliven. And the whole idea behind uh, the approach that he takes is really looking at those 10,000 hours that was popularized by Gladwell. You know, he didn't invent it, but he was the one that kind of brought it into into pop psychology. In this book, the guy says, you know, all of these people that we believe are just overnight geniuses, they were trained by masters (laughs) for many, many, many years, starting at an incredible young age, and that's how they became an overnight success. And they look at people like Tiger Woods and they say, you know, Tiger Woods is an amazing genius. He's obviously a prodigy. What people don't realize is that uh, his dad was a, a retired trainer in the military. So he was in the military. So he knew a little bit about discipline. He was a trainer in the military. So he knew a little bit about how to break things down. So people break things down into bites so people could digest them. And then he had just retired. So in his retirement years, he picked up golf and was a single handicap golf player in retirement. And that was his passion. He just loved it. So now he could spend all of his time doing this thing that he loved. And uh, he married Tiger's mom as his second marriage. And he's committed to spending time with his kid that he couldn't spend with his other kids. And so at nine months, he would prop 
Tiger up in his chair as Earl would hit golf balls into the net. And just every chance he got, he was out playing golf and bringing his son along. So by the time Tiger Woods came on the scene as a phenomenal prodigy at age 18, he'd already been around the game for 17 years. Yeah, he already had put in his 10,000 hours. <laughs> I love the title of that book, and I love the story you're sharing because, and this is something which I, I find it amusing or, or, or whatever. I mean, people come up all the time, finish playing a concert. People come up and they say, wow, I wish I was talented like you guys. They come up to the band. Ah, oh, wish I could play the drums like you. Wish I could play the piano, you know, whatever. Come up to the, to the musicians. It's a compliment. I mean, it's intended to be, wow, you, you're, you, know, you guys are really good at music and that was so cool or whatever. But I think, what, I think there's a distinction that people don't realize when they say that, it's undistinguished for them that I wish I was talented is not what got any of us to be performing on that stage. Mm -hmm. It was the thousands of hours of practice for many years and the going out and actually performing on a stage hundreds and hundreds of times and screwing it up and making big mistakes. And oh no, you know, I better not do that again over and over again which then allows you to be able to put on a good performance or for an athlete, right? That's what allows the athlete to go out and perform it. It's not like anybody just wakes up, you know, overnight with talent and then is a, is a professional at something like that. So I, I definitely like what you're, what you're sharing about uh, that. Yeah, okay. So now you, you are um, obviously an accomplished uh, very well prepared musician. Uh, we we know that uh, more than anything, that is a testament to your commitment to do the work, right? Because that's really what your performance is a testament of. It's it's a testament of your dedication to putting in the work, to building your craft, and uh, that's what uh, a lot of people don't do and won't do. But you're also a business person. And I'm curious, how do you convey these sentiments that you're sharing with me, these principles that you're sharing with me, how do you convey that to brand new members of your organization? Yeah. Uh, maybe you've got someone that's never been in business before, they've never done anything before, and maybe you're just wanting someone to do something physical. Sure. But in order to be a contributing member of your organization, there's some, there's some success philosophies that they need to be a part of. Sure. How do you share these things with people who might be neophyte to success? So one of the really important things to me, which I think I learned this from music, but then this was really reinforced doing these businesses. And then, you know, I've got some, for example, one of my favorite business leaders that I, I like to follow is Ray Dalio, who is the principles guy, right? And what I really like about what he says is that, I don't know if I can quote this one directly, but he's got a very good one about, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. You can make mistakes. But what's not okay is to make a mistake and then not evaluate, wait a minute, what happened? What were the root causes? Or the way I like to say it is, what were the inputs that created that output? And how can we make it so that next time we don't do that input so that we can have a better output, right? 
And that's what I'm always telling people about is, and I think this is, I, I'm pretty sure I got this from Dahlia. It's kind of the way that he describes these things. But everything to me seems like a machine. It's got inputs and it's got outputs. So for example, for both of these companies, we've spent a lot of time and, and energy working on our sales materials and our language about how we describe the service and how that language aligns with our target market and what's important to them. And this is totally inputs and outputs. So when I talk to uh, my guys who are given the sales presentations, I say, okay, you got this objection from a prospect. All right, well, what did you say right before then, which then had them respond with that objection? And when you analyze it over many, many repetitions, we come to realize that every time I say X, I tend to get the response Y. And so always going back and evaluating, well, if I say this X, I get that Y. And is that Y the Y, is that the one that I want? And if it's not the one that I want, well, how can I change my X to get the Y that I want? But you'd be surprised, right? A lot of people just keep pounding away at it and getting frustrated. And I say, well, wait a minute, actually the mistake or the oh, I said something to this prospect and they got confused and they went off on a tangent and I wasn't able to reel them back in and you know, wasn't able to get the conversation back on track. Okay, so you lost that great, supposedly great opportunity. Okay, no problem. Because the learning or the, the, the lesson that's learned out of analyzing that mistake and creating a new principle for how to proceed in the future is always going to be worth more than whatever that short-term loss was. So that that's my big that's my big thing about the the inputs and outputs, which I which I attribute to. I love it. I love it. My brother, who I have not had on the show yet. Wow, that's kind of interesting. But uh, he is always a fan of saying he's not the one who invented this, but he's a fan of saying that success leaves clues. And so if you want to be successful, just follow the clues. It's not that hard. Just follow the clues. You know, w one of the things that, that you brought to my attention is something along, the, uh, along that same vein, uh, because I love jazz music and I was familiar with Oscar Peterson. It's like he, you know, staple. And then Dr. John. Okay. I, you know, I'm familiar with Dr. John. But Witten Kelly, I was not familiar with. I checked him out and I should have been familiar with. Tell me about, uh, of your three favorite musicians, uh, how did Witten Kelly make the list? What was your introduction to Witten Kelly and, and what place does, does he hold for you? When it comes to the flavor of jazz that I really like, the Oscar Peterson flavor of jazz, which, and what I mean by that, the elements that I like about it, are danceable. The other thing is, when I look at why do I like the Winton Kelly trio? Why do I like the Oscar Peterson trio? And people that I consider to be of that style or that flavor, Ahmad Jamal, Red Garland, Sonny Clark. Unfortunately, most of these guys are no longer with us, right? But this is of a generation where there was this very, you know, this flavor of jazz that was very powerful and, and, um, Breaking that down into its pieces to try to figure out what are the inputs that produce that output. Well, to me, what we have there is the members of the ensemble perfectly aligned with their rhythmic time feel. So not to get technical or anything, but, you know, swing music. Okay, I don't know how many of the listeners are, you know, are musicians, but basically 
swing music, in, in a lot of music, you have, you know, the division of the notes being even, you know, one and two and three, and, right? And in swing music, you've got the division of these eighth notes, which is uneven, one and two and three, and, but right? That's the swing. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that within the swing, not everybody plays that rhythmic feel the same way. Some people play one and two and three, and some people play it more straight, one and two, you know, whatever. There's a, a range. And just like in a business or in any team of people that come together to do something, if they're extremely well aligned with this is where we're going to put it, and we're all going to put it in the same place together, that's what produces something which makes you want to get up and dance. And then there's other elements to it, with, with which all these guys, Winton Kelly uh, Trio being one of the strongest examples, is what I like about jazz is when the rhythm section creates this beautiful... I hear it as if it were a, a blank white canvas. They, they, don't, they don't play on top of each other. Ensemble creates this beautiful canvas, and then the soloist, if it's in the case of Winton Kelly Trio, and when he plays his melody or his solo, it sings. It really, the balance of it, and you can, you can follow that melody as if it were a singer. Even though it doesn't have lyrics, you can imagine as if it had lyrics and sing along with that melody. That's what I listen for in all types of music is do we have that rhythmic alignment, that really feeling that makes you want to dance? And does the ensemble create sense of a canvas that the primary voices can paint on and you can follow along with the story that's being told by the primary voices? So that's the through line between the types of music I like. And Winton Kelly and these guys that I'm talking about, very strong in, in the jazz idiom when it comes to that approach. Wow. Man, you are absolutely embodying what I had hoped for uh, when we launched Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership. It's just, <laughs> it's just fitting into that space that feels right. And a lot of musicians will talk about, can you fit in the pocket? Just sit there and, and, and let things happen. That's what and I'm that's exactly what you're doing. And then, you know, uh, we talk a little bit about this idea of the invisible board of directors. And it's this, this group of people that could be physical people that you can reach out and touch an actual board of director, or they can be people that you have only met in research. You've only met on YouTube or whatever the video platform might be. But each of the people that you've got listed on your invisible board of directors seem to have this consistency of having a process, but having some daring. Uh, Richard Branson absolutely fits that mold of having a process, but not afraid to step outside of that process when there's something that feels right. His autobiography is very entertaining. I don't know if you've, if you've read this, but the thing that was so impactful or well, I, I got such a kick out of reading his autobiographies. For, first of all, he's got all of these crazy adventure stories. He's up in the hot air balloon flying around the world, you know, way beyond anything that I would ever do, but very interesting. But then when it comes to the business, he, to me, is on the extreme end in a positive way of this thing that I've heard as a leadership principle of get the people together, set the goal, get them inspired about the goal, and then just leave them alone 
And he's got story after story in his autobiography because he, if I'm remembering correctly, I, I don't think he went to college. He was not a, you know, he didn't go to business school or whatever. He's got these, all these amazing stories about bringing together this phenomenal team of people. They know what they're doing. They've got a mission. They're, you know, he brings together the funding. He inspires the investors. He puts it all, he puts the whole deal together. And then he'll write in his book, okay, and then he went off to the Virgin Islands and went sailing for six months. And then, you know, check in with me next year. It's like, but that's a really extreme example of, you know, hands off or whatever. But I, to me, that was very powerful to read those stories because that is such a strong example of what we were talking about before, which is trust the team of people that you're bringing in that hopefully are smarter than you to really put it together. I mean, again, I mean, I'm glad you went back to where we started because that's something that I don't see a lot of in the general population of leaders. Typically what I see, and maybe I'm just not getting out as much as I used to, but typically what I see is someone who came up as a star performer. They were very, very good at whatever business individual contributing space they were in. Right. So if you were in sales, this person was the key salesperson. And then they are put in charge of a group of people with the hope that they could create other incredible salespeople. And when they have an opportunity to come in and do the leadership thing, it's so tempting to fall back into, now I'm going to play the solo. You know, book after book, research after research, example after example will demonstrate why that does not work. If it does work, it's only in the short term, but you are never, ever going to really step into your role as a leader if you're continuously trying to play the solo. Why is it that that's so hard for people to walk away from once they assume a leadership type role? That's a very interesting question. You know, I'm in a strange position to respond to that because I'm, first of all, I'm very young. And second, I've never really had a job in the sense that you're talking about. So I didn't go from, I'm the sales person that's producing and then get the promotion. I, I just like, I mean, I had a couple of job, a couple of jobs here and there, internships and stuff. But basically what, you're, what we've been talking about, the music and then these two businesses, that's been my career so far. And I'm still in the early stage of my career here. But what I see, because this was something that, I've seen in both of my businesses where I brought in people, excellent people, skilled, motivated, they love the company. You know, okay, we're a startup, so we're all working, we're, we're doing it, we're wearing all the hats. Okay, well now, okay, we're up one more level. Now we start to have more of a team in place. How do you transition from being the one doing the work to being the leader of a team of people doing the work? And I'm coming at this from the perspective of not being that person transitioning from doing the work to the leader, but being the person leading the person. You see what I'm saying? From one level above that. And there's a very interesting distinction that I don't think a lot of people are familiar with is the mindset and the activities and the approach of somebody who's going to be a high performing person in their actual work versus what it takes to do the leadership thing. You know, it's, it's an interesting question how to do that. I mean, I think you got to be okay with the people that are on your team making mistakes. And it's, it's the, 
reaction or the way that you deal with that mistake happening, I think this is a key habit for people to get into. When you're the one doing the work and you make a mistake, it's like, oh no, got to fix my mistake. I got to run around. Okay. If you're the one leading the people making the mistake, you've been doing this for longer than me, but I assume that there's a lot of people when they get promoted in that leadership position, either they want to go and run and put that fire out themselves, big no-no, I think, or punish or get mad at the person who made the mistake. And both of those are counterproductive to this development of being in a leadership position, right? Because most people punish themselves enough for making the mistake. They don't need their boss also punishing them. They feel bad enough. And what's really powerful is when you say, it's great that you made that mistake because we're going to take away a learning lesson and we're going to implement a principle so that it doesn't happen again. Now, if it keeps happening over and over again, then you got a problem. It's like this totally different attitude shift that has to happen, right? For this to be one of your first entrees, you have nailed it. It is a mind, mindset shift that many people either don't make or it takes them a while to make. You know, if you're listening to this, I, I would encourage you guys to double back to season one and check out my conversation with uh, Greg Strauss because we talk about this uh, in some of his examples. But I sum this up by saying most leaders don't know the business that they're in. And by saying that, I don't mean whether you're in the car industry or whether you're in the you know, music business or whether you're in the consulting business. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about most leaders think that they are in the business of driving results. And I'm going to tell you right now, unless you have a, an organization of one, if you are a leader with people in your organization that you are responsible you are not in the business of driving results. You are in the business of creating the environment for your people to drive the result. And therefore, anytime you do anything that compromises the environment in which your people can drive the results, you are hurting the business that you're in. I'll seize this opportunity to talk about the three principles uh, that I wrote about in my, in my book, and that is that leaders have three responsibilities and three responsibilities only. And leaders tend to do other things and, and, and they're usually good things, but when they're doing those other things, they should not be confused into thinking that they're fulfilling their leadership role. Those three things are, leaders are responsible for painting a very clear picture of what winning looks like. What does success look like? What's the vision? Tell me the, the color of the landscape in the promised land. That's the job of the leader. And by leader, I'm not necessarily talking about the person at the top of the org chart, but whoever is leading the organization, their primary goal is to paint a very clear picture of what winning looks like. Their second responsibility is to identify and remove barriers that might get in the way of getting to that promised land, whatever those barriers are, whether it's access to capital, whether it's access to people, whether it's access to uh, technology, whether it's access to training, if whatever the barrier seems to be that is inhibiting your people from getting where they are to get to the promised land, the leader's job is to identify that 
and to remove the barriers that get in the way. And then the third priority, and this is by no means the least important, but the third priority is to inspire people to wanna get on board with achieving that vision. That's it, that's what leaders do. That's the business that they're in. And anytime a leader steps in and says, well, let me make this sales call, I know the, I know the customer, let me, let me give them a call and see if we can bring in this revenue. Uh, I get it, I've run some businesses where payroll hinged on whether or not we close this deal and I get it. And just know that when you're doing that, you're not leading at that moment. Those principles that you shared, spot on and really powerful because um, the most fulfilling thing that I see in these businesses now is when we're on a team meeting. And just to give the listeners a sense, MHW Live Music, there's five of us full-time and Wiggly Group, there's 17. Just to give you a sense of the size of these. And in both cases, when we get on a team meeting, I no longer am leading or driving these team meetings. We've got leadership throughout the organization, right? We've got chief operating officer, amazing leadership, you know, wow, just inspiring the team and driving them to produce these results and getting people excited and come to me if you have problems. And it's this type of thing where it doesn't have to come from me. Even if I, something happened and I was gone for a month, I feel like, okay, these guys, it's still going to be there. And because the leadership has been passed on to other people in the organization, and that's very fulfilling to see that. It's very exciting to see that kind of come to fruition. And, and we're just at the beginning, right? These are still very small organizations. So it'll be exciting to see them multiply uh, over time. But yeah, those principles, very, very powerful and I think spot on. Yeah, I mean, well, hey, you, you've talked a little bit about the businesses that you have. Uh, I, I would love for you to share a little bit more about how people can know when they need your services. So talk a little bit about your two businesses and, and how our listeners can know that they need to contact Matt um, because they need what you do. So live entertainment businesses, I would say more specific in terms of target market, MHW Live Music, basically we sell our entertainment programs to hotels. So really we talk to hotel general managers and food and beverage directors, you know, we've got kind of a very specific target market there. We also talk to meeting planners and we do some corporate events, but we're really focused on the ongoing entertainment for the hotel. Wiggler Group is a lot more broad just in terms of the potential number of clients that it is applicable to. But basically, the reason that people come to us at Wiggler Group, generally people They'll have a, B, a B2B company, and if their deal size usually is relatively, it's got to be more than a few hundred bucks. I mean, generally, we're talking about deal sizes starting at 20,000, 30,000 annual, all the way up to, you know, could be the millions. And a lot of these clients come to us and they don't have a fully developed sales and marketing process internally. They don't have a great research system, CRM system email marketing, sales reps hitting the phone all day. You know, they don't have that whole structure in place. And what we do is we say, look, if, you, if you're you know, in a B2B company and you've got well-defined target markets, plug into what we call the Wiggler Group engine. We've got the research. We've got the systems. We've got 
sales reps and, and growing. We've produced some amazing results for people for a cost that is really, really attractive compared to what it would have cost to do it in-house. I mean, there's this amazing value of you plug into the system that we've already figured out how to set it up. The clients don't have to go through the painful process of testing out systems, hiring people, firing people, training. It's like, okay, plug in. And within a few weeks, you know, the engine's running and we start to get to work. So that's basically the two companies. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm out talking about leadership things and, and, you know, doing podcasts and looking forward to corporate events coming back, you know, looking forward to hopefully doing some, you know, seminars and panels and things like that, talking about these leadership and entrepreneurship issues, because one of the big things that I'm sharing with a lot of people is this question of how to establish a really strong and motivated company culture in a remote work environment. Because both of these companies, you know, it's 100% remote, right? And how do we come together and do this leadership thing that we're talking about and inspire people when a lot of them we haven't even necessarily met physically in person? So anyway, that, that's the, the whole range. Man, I tell you, that is really, that's really, really needed. Uh, as a matter of fact, I just had a couple conversations this past week uh, with two organizations and they're trying to answer that very, that very thing. I mean, they understand that uh, we've got a labor force that everyone's looking for a job. However, it's an employee's market because minimum wage is increasing. <laughs> Therefore, the cost of everything is increasing. It's so tenuous. Employment is so tenuous that if you don't do the right things, if you don't build the right culture, you could lose your best employee over a matter of $1,000, right? And, uh, you know, one of the fathers, actually the father of modern day management, Mr. Drucker, uh, has famously said that culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I've gone as far as to say that I think Mr. Drucker was was actually not correct. I think Mr. Drucker was misguided. And I have improved upon, yes, you've heard it here, Galen Bingham has improved upon the words of the father of modern-day management, Mr. Drucker, because I believe that culture eats strategy for breakfast, lunch, dinner, and midnight snack. I mean, because not only was he right, he just was not complete in that culture is absolutely everything. Uh, When culture is not in place, that's when people start looking. I have often said that I can't stop my people from taking another job that pays them more money. I can, however, stop my people from answering the phone call. Well, man, I I have so enjoyed this conversation and I am so glad that you are listening to Whiskey Jazz and Leadership and said, hey, dude, I need to be part of this conversation because you are absolutely right. Uh, You needed to be part of this conversation. I'm glad that you're part of our community. And so, um, yes, man. So with that, let's let's, uh, raise raise our glasses and uh, we're going to toast out. Thank you so much. And um, nothing but continued success to you and whatever my community can do 
to help you build your community. That's what family's for. Yeah, likewise. Cheers. Cheers. Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.